a rumor. I'm, I'm not sure. 2020 may bring us one. It may, it may, it may happen. So. <laughs> so we're doing a series on discipleship. And so part of the series is about doctrine. And say this. Doctrine is what the Bible teaches. Dogma has nothing more than people's opinions. So a lot of time there's a lot of dogma that passes as doctrine. And so doctrine, it's important to understand what the Bible teaches. And one of the things the Bible very much teaches is that, Dave, that is a festive jacket, man. That is the festivist jacket. That is a festivist jacket. That is like... I mean, literally, I noticed that jacket from across the room. That's like, that's like so Christmas and so now. No, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. It's a funny story. I told this to a guy at church one time. I saw a guy walking by. I was going to this other church. And I said, when I was uh, growing in the, in the Lord. And I go, oh, wow. Hey, nice jacket. And this guy turns around and comes back and hands it to me. And it was like a corduroy-like jacket, you know. It's like, here, I've been wanting to get rid of this for a while. He's like, keep it. I'm glad you like it. So, anyway, it's totally random. Say this, Christmas has no meaning without Jesus. Christmas, come on, has no meaning without the virgin birth. Jesus is not ordinary, He's extraordinary. Christmas has no meaning without it. And the Bible talks about a lot of amazing births. We have Samuel, who was asked for by the Lord. We have Samson. Cool story with Samson. Another one that was a promised one. It was an amazing birth and an amazing announcement. It's one of my favorite stories, the story of Samson, is when the angel announces Samson's birth, he steps into the flame of the offering, and he goes up with the offering. I'm like, how cool is that? One thing is to get an angelic visitation. Another thing is to watch him go up with the fire. I mean, that's like, what did just happen? Anyway, uh, so the virgin birth is a very important one. And you say, why is it so important? Do you know why? Because 73% of evangelicals believe in the virgin birth. That means 27% of Christians aren't even sure that there was an actual virgin birth. I'm like, are you kidding me? It stands at the doorway of the gospel. Matthew and Mark, or excuse me, Matthew and Luke, verse chapter of their gospels confronts us or shows us the virgin birth and presents the virgin birth with it. And it just basically puts it out there and says, deal with this. Doesn't explain it. Just says, this is the way it is. It invites the hungry. Wait a minute, this guy, Jesus was born of a virgin? Let me go further. Or it rebukes the skeptic or rejects the skeptic. It offends the skeptic. Where the skeptic will read it and go, oh, come on, he's born of a virgin? And walk away. It's really at the doorway of the gospel. It's supernatural and it's supremely necessary. And you say, why is the virgin birth necessary? Because human beings cannot produce a savior. We, can't, we have no ability to produce our own savior. The Savior must have, sin came from another world and infected us. Our salvation must come from another place. Man is inherently born into sin. And every person that is born of our line, of our ancestral line through Adam, is born sinful. And sin, the requirement for sin, is perfect. Even in the Old Testament, when they brought the offerings before the priests, they were temporary offerings. The goats, the sheep, the pigeons, the sheep, the pigeons, when they were brought before the priests, they had to be examined and they could not be offered if they were found to have an imperfection. So all of the offerings and all of the standards for the offerings required perfection. Man has no ability to produce perfection. Sin's requirement, the atonement for sin, the standard was perfection. The offering had to be perfect. None of us are perfect. But Jesus is. And it's impossible for us to be saved in, in and of ourselves. So Jesus, the only way that had this could happen is if God became a man. He became like us. There's two testimonies of the virgin birth. Matthew. It's important. I love to tell Matthew's story. Matthew... While John's my favorite gospel, I think Matthew's my favorite character. He's one of my favorite disciples. He's very unknown, but we know a lot about him from his gospel. He was a tax collector, but he was highly educated. So you're dealing with a guy who is a very religiously educated Jew. And you say, how do we know this? Because Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than any of the other gospel writers. And he's firing it out. I mean, Matthew fires out Old Testament verses like a machine gun. 
And he directly connects those verses to prophetic. He understands who Jesus was. He connects it to the word and he connects it to the prophetic very clearly. So he's very educated in the, in the religion of his people, very educated in the religion of his time. But he was a tax collector. Ha ha. Which means he was an enemy of his people. If you were a Jew and you rejected Judaism, you were considered an outcast. If you were a Jew and you were a half-breed, meaning you didn't have a pure bloodline, you were considered an outcast. If you were a Gentile who converted to Judaism, you were considered an outcast. If you were a woman and you were a Jew, you were considered an outcast. None of this was God's ways, by the way. But this was the religious institution that they had presented. None of this God told them to do, but this was their own prejudices. And so they projected that. Matthew was a tax collector. To be a tax collector, Alex comes, Alex, our Indian intern here, comes from a caste system, right? And so the lowest castes have no rights. So the lowest caste, you have no rights. You're lucky you even breathe in our country. And to be a tax collector, you are considered at the bottom of the totem pole on all standards. If you're a tax collector, which means you reject your people and you are now working for a foreign power to collect revenue on behalf of that foreign power, Matthew was hated. Absolutely hated by the Jews. His own people hated him. And the question isn't why did the Jewish people hate Matthew. The question for me has always been, why did Matthew not, why did he reject Jewish society? And I believe he saw a religion and he saw an institution and he saw a a, a functioning thing that had nothing to do with the word that he read. The word that I read is not reflected in the system that I'm a part of. Therefore, I will not be a part of this system any longer. And oh man, I identify with that. I totally resonate with that. I didn't come to Jesus to be part of a, of a religion. I came to Jesus to be part of a revolution. I, I can't, I, that's, that, was my, that was me out the gate, off the rip. I didn't come out to be a part of somebody's denomination so that I could win the approval of men. I didn't come to glorify people. I came to glorify Jesus. That's the only reason I, I live and I exist and I breathe is for that purpose alone. And Matthew, when he saw Jesus, he left his tax table. This is why Matthew was such a primary importance. Because James, Peter, James, and John, they all left their fishing nets. They were able to go back to it. When Matthew left that table, there was no going back. Because there was about 30 people waiting for his table. And they all had to ante up. So when Matthew vacated the table, the table was now auctioned off to the highest bidder. And they were in a line waiting for that table. So Matthew, when he burned that ship... He wasn't going back. And Matthew is somebody who I believe saw something very real in Jesus. He witnessed something in Jesus and in the person of Jesus. And he could get him right out of the gate. And he said, this is what I'm talking about. I see the heart of my God through this one. I see what these scriptures are meaning through this one. And he didn't see the system. He didn't see it in the system. And so he became a rebel and an antagonist against the system. To the furthest part of the good. Do you guys get this? Do you understand that? Are there any revolutionaries in the room? Anybody at all? Hold your fist up if you feel like a revolutionary. Come on. The revolution is on, man. It's a revolution of love, of grace, of forgiveness, of mercy, of power, of truth. It's not a rebellious revolution. It's a right-sending revolution. To unturn the whole system, the whole cosmos. To turn it on its head. To openly destroy the works of the devil. That's the devil's system. Jesus came to bring the kingdom. And that kingdom is a revolutionary concept in light of the one that exists. Luke is a Jew. So we have Matthew. So Matthew wouldn't be a guy. He He was a skeptic by nature. Yet he's telling us about the virgin birth. So this guy's automatically a skeptic. Yet he's saying, hey, this happened. Then you have the other guy whose name's Luke. Luke was a Hellenized Jew, which means he was educated in the Greek system of thinking. He knew Greek culture. He knew Greek literature. He knew the Greek dress. He knew everything culturally that the Greeks did. It was called a Hellenized Hellenized system. And he was also a doctor. And he was educated in the Greek forms of medicine, which at the time was the highest form. Now, it doesn't take a PhD to know that virgins don't have babies. Okay, yet we have a Ph.D. telling us that the virgin had a baby. 
So we have eyewitness accounts by two very credible witnesses that testify this is true. The foundations of the virgin birth go all the way back to the book of Genesis. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Women don't have seed, ladies and gentlemen. The man has the seed. And this is an open prophetic declaration at the very fall of man. When man fell, Jesus wasn't like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? This completely threw a curveball at me. What are we going to do? He immediately had the answer. He had the answer right out of the gate. He looked at the serpent. He said, because you've done this, this is what's going to happen. And and the woman, the one that you deceived, is now going to become your worst nightmare. I'm now going to use the woman as a weapon against you. While you used her as a weapon against me, I'm now going to use her as a weapon against you. And she's going to be the instrument of your ultimate demise. Ladies, are you with me? Can I get a witness? Help me help you. All right. Crush his head, deal a fatal blow. This is what it means. Jesus would bypass the blood of Adam. Adam was the federal head. He was, counted as the fir- he was counted as the line from which all people descended. So when Adam sinned, that's when all of creation fell. And God was going to bypass Adam entirely. So he didn't even use the blood of Adam. He didn't bypass the federal authority of Adam and he went through the woman. He bypassed the curse entirely. And the word crush head is to deal a fatal blow. This is what it means. The woman will deal through the seed of the woman. You will be dealt a fatal blow. Your commerce will be removed. And it means to grind and to crush. It's interesting that he removes commerce. It's a word that removes commerce. In Isaiah chapter 14, I believe, 7 or 14, I can't remember. I'm, I'm on so many numbers today. I have a lot of verses. So I've got a verse here and everything. But where it says that what the devil did is he began to commerce his sin. He began to trade his sin. And, the, and it's almost as if Jesus is saying right here, I'm going to remove your ability to commerce this. I'm going to take people and they're going to not be deceived anymore. You're not going to be able to just dilute them anymore. You're not going to be able to trade and merchandise your sin to them anymore. I'm going to crush you. I'm going to grind you. I'm going to completely deal a fatal blow to you and your kingdom. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. What I'm trying to show you here through these Old Testament Testament verses is that the virgin birth of Jesus is not a New Testament idea. This This wasn't baked up by a bunch of Christians sitting in a room going, hey, I got an idea. This is something that begins in the, within the third chapter of the Bible. It is actually the virgin birth of Jesus is spoken about in every section of the Old Testament. It's spoken about in the law. It's spoken about in the minor prophets. It's spoken about in the major prophets. And it's spoken about in the Psalms. God is literally reminding them and incepting this concept, this understanding of the God, the God that would become man in every section of the Old Testament. Every section. It couldn't be missed. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. I'll just give you the context. The king's freaking out. The Assyrians have come. They're going to destroy Judah. And he's freaked out. He's like, the line of Judah will be destroyed. The throne of David will be no more. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. And the Lord shows up and goes, am I too small to do a thing like this? Is this enemy too great for me? Do you see me panicking? He shows up with the prophet. And he says, as surely as I stand before you, within 63 years, the head of Assyria is Damascus. And he said, I will crush Damascus. And he said, and I will break the Assyrians. And he time-binded it. He bound it to time. And he said, that nation that opposes you will be no more within 63 or 65 years. He puts the time on the table. And he tells them, this is going to happen. But you're so freaked out that the line of Judah is going to be eradicated. And to prove to you that I'm not a liar, ask me for a sign. And the king, of course, got really humble. Oh, no. I could never. Listen, when the Holy Spirit tells you to ask him for something, that is not the time to wax humble. When the Jesus comes to you and asks you, ask me for something, that's not the time to go, oh, well, I, I would never be such a person, Lord, as to ask you. Oh, you are far too great. It's an insult to him. Because when he opens the door and says, ask me, he's expecting you to ask me. When he tells you to do something, and he tells you, if you do this, I'm going to do that. When he tells the, the, the king to put the arrows into crush, these arrows represent your enemy. What you do to these arrows, the Lord will do to your enemies. And you know what the king does? He goes, 
He tapped him on the ground. And the prophet goes, are you kidding me? You should have destroyed those arrows. And he says, but now the Lord will not destroy them fully because you didn't destroy the arrows. A prophetic significance of what do you want? He's asking this king, what do you want? He's like, oh, I don't want to ask you for anything. And the Lord says, no problem. You don't want to ask me. I'm going to give you a sign anyway. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Watch this. Behold, the virgin is going to conceive and call and bring forth a son. And his name is going to be Emmanuel. And he will sit on the throne of his father, David. What God is saying, he's directly, we not only have the prophetic word that answers, um, the, the, that tells us that Jesus is going to be born of a virgin, which it's in other places as well, including Genesis. He tells him this, but he also is assuring the king that the thing that you fear most will not come to pass. You're afraid of the kingly line being destroyed. I'm gonna, the God-man is going to come forth of the line of David. He will sit upon the throne of the line of David and his throne will be eternal. Nothing's going to happen to the line of the kings. Nothing's going to happen to the line of Judah. What are you freaked out about? I'm going to bring forth an eternal one who will sit upon that throne. And this eternal one will not be born of men. He'll be born of me. And he'll be born through, through the seed of the woman. Now, this is a big controversial thing because this, this word virgin in the Old Testament is translated nine times. Everybody say it. Nine times. I'll just show you how Bible skeptics think. They, they think like extraordinarily stupidly. And they'll say, and I've had actually I've had this conversation with Jewish people, and I've had a conversation with a rabbinical guy, and they tell me, well, the word, when I tell them Isaiah 7, they'll go, well, that word virgin means, only means woman of virtue. It doesn't mean virgin. And I'll tell them, I go, you know how many times that word is used in the Old Testament? Of course, they don't know. They don't even know. And I'll tell them it's used nine times. And eight times it means one thing, virgin. Eight times it only means virgin. One time, it means virtuous woman. But, if that's not good enough for you, then we talk about the Septuagint. So, about 300 years before Jesus came, the the Jews took the Hebrew and translated it into the Greek with 70 scholars. There were 70 scholars, they had to agree upon every word. So, they were translating the Hebrew into the Greek, which was the language of the people. It was the common language. It would be what English is today. It was spoken globally. And throughout the known world, Greek was the dominant language. Throughout the known world today, English is the dominant language, for better or worse. Aircraft, traffic controllers, everything's communicated in English. If you fly on an airplane, they're not speaking Swahili while they're flying your plane. Aren't you glad? They're communicating with the tower in English. The tower is communicating with the plane in English. That is the universal language of all travel in, in the airline industry. And so they translated it into Greek. And when they got to Isaiah 7, they translated the word Alma, which is the word for virgin in the Hebrew. But they say, oh, no, it's just virtuous woman. And they use the word Parthenos. The problem, the only issue with that is, is Parthenos in Greek only means one thing. It means virgin. There is no alternate meaning for that. And so the translators, all 70 of them, knew that Isaiah was meaning virgin. There's no question what God was intending. He wasn't fuzzy about what he was meaning. A virgin will conceive. Micah says, You, O Bethlehem, though you are least among the the, the thousands of Judah, out of you will come forth the one. It's the Hebrew word, maskal. And he will be ruler over the... And his going forth will be from old and everlasting. The ancient one is going to come through you. And it's the word maskal. And it means absolute dominion. It speaks of... That word maskal means dominion in all realms. Is that crazy? That's the same level of dominion Jesus gives to the church. Dominion in all realms. But he says that the only reason we had that is because Jesus gave it to us. And the only reason he gave it to us is because he's the only one who can. And he says the Moscow will come through you. The one who holds dominion over all things. The divine one is going to be born through you. This wasn't some foreign concept. This idea of virgin birth, when the Jewish people and the Jewish leaders act like they don't know what they're talking about, I'm like, have you read your Bible? Do you even know your own word? The reality is is that they don't. They read the teaching, they read the commentaries of the rabbis more than they read the Old Testament scriptures. They don't read the Old Testament scriptures. It's become become a religion of of rabbis rather than a religion of, of of the word. They were called to the word, yet they follow the rabbis. Don't ask me why, but they do. Jeremiah says, how long will you gad about, you backsliding daughter? How long will you live beneath your identity? That's what he's saying. How long will you live beneath the standard that I've placed upon you, daughter? 
For the Lord is creating a new thing in the earth. A woman shall bring forth a man. And everybody goes, Woo, a woman bringing forth a man. Like, that never happens. You know? That's not what he's saying. He's like, I'm going to do something you've never seen before. A woman by herself is going to bring forth a man. That's what he's saying. They knew that. They would never come across a verse like that and not piece it and tear it apart. They would know that. They would know this relates to Isaiah 7, this relates to Genesis 3, this relates to Micah 5. They would know that those words interconnect. They would know that. This is no new concept. Since the 1800s, man, experimental science has been taking place. And you know what we're trying to do? Man wants to be God. So we want to clone so that we don't have to couple man and woman. We want to clone. And then not only do we want to clone, we want to see if we can produce a species, if we can replicate uh, something without actually using the male and the female. And so they've done this. They've, they've been able to produce eggs through sea urchins without interbreeding. They produce silkworms. A silkworm, they can get a silkworm to reproduce without a male and a female. They can get rabbits in some instances to reproduce if they make the temperature right. So a, a, a rabbit can produce, a female rabbit can produce by herself. They, they can do that. They've manipulated that. Only problem is that the, male, the, man, the humans are far more complicated than that. It is absolutely impossible. We're the highest beings on the planet. We're the most sophisticated by design in every way because we're made in the image and likeness of our creator. Right? Now let's just play a game. First of all, it is completely impossible. It's not even realm possible. But if it were, the ladies, you have two chromosomes, XX. The man, the dudes, we got XY. <laughs> Which says that the sex of the child is determined by the male. So if you were actually able to get a woman to produce by herself, she could only produce a female. Because she only carries the XX chromosome. She doesn't carry the Y chromosome. It's impossible. It's impossible by design. First of all, it's impossible physically. It's impossible scientifically. It's impossible biologically. And it's impossible creatively, by design, a woman, even if they were some way back in that time, able to incubate Mary and get her to produce without a man, to get her to actually virgin conceive, she could not produce a male. She could only produce a female because she carries only XX. Is that nuts? It's like God said, Jesus has anticipated every argument human beings have. Every single one. It's like, y'all think you're so smart? You don't know anything. You know, the argument's already settled. It's impossible. It can't happen. Not possible. Here's the question. This is the question everybody asks. Well, I don't... This, this again, this is crazy. People go, well, I don't understand how a virgin could conceive. I don't understand that. And you know what my answer to that is? We don't even understand how natural conception takes place. How do you think we're going to understand supernatural conception? Jesus told Nicodemus, if I speak to you of things of the earth and you don't understand it, how in the world are you going to understand spiritual things if I start breaking that out on you? We don't understand. We understand the, the, the what of what happens, but we don't understand the how. So we'd understand that when sperm goes into the, in the, up, the, up, the, up the fallopian tube and connects with the female egg up in the uterus, of the ov- the, uh, it connects, that something happens. The sperm connects with the egg and the egg starts to multiply and it starts to form out and ultimately at the end of its formation, out comes a baby within 40 weeks. We understand that. We understand, that. we understand the fact that that happens, but we have no clue as to how that actually happens. They don't even know what sperm is. What is this little squiggly thing that's swimming around? And why do the cells compete with one another to get there first? The fact that you were born, do you know you're born a winner just by the fact that you're born? Every other little male cell that was trying to get there... The one that brought you forth was the winner. You're a winner just by that fact alone you're a winner. Jesus gives winners that have come to the, come to the earth. We don't understand that at all. Yet we think we're gonna, we, yet we think we have the right to skeptically look at a per, that God that our God who spins planets on his finger, casts, casts stars from his eyes, can cause a fusion reaction just off our, just off our coast with the sun. We have an impossibility. The sun itself is an impossibility. 
It's impossible. Fusion, hydrogen, and helium do not mix well together. They're extremely combustible and extremely volatile. We cannot make hydrogen and helium combine in a stable form, yet we have that right off of our coast. The sun is a hydrogen and helium reaction. It is a fusion reaction. The sun itself, hanging in our sky every day, every time you look at the sun, you need to go, that's an impossibility. Only God can do that. That's an impossibility. Only God can do that. That is not possible. That is absolutely not possible. Yet we feel like we have the right to ask God questions about things. And it's not like a genuine question. We ask Him in a skeptical way. God doesn't have an issue with a genuine, honest question. He loves that. But if you, want to, if you want to ask him a question simply to vindicate your selfish, arrogant position, he's never going to answer it. No. Nah. You go, well, I don't understand how a virgin could be born, a boy could be born of a virgin. We don't understand natural conception. So let's, why don't we figure out what natural conception is, and then, maybe we not, and then maybe we can take a look at supernatural, maybe we can look at that. I was telling my wife, they don't even understand blood. Did you know that? They don't understand what it is or why it is. They understand what it does. It transmutes oxygen throughout the body, but they don't understand the living part of blood. They don't understand when blood leaves the body, what, why do you die? They don't understand, they, they, they don't understand like, like even when they look at blood at the cellular level, it's 1% away from salt water. Your blood is saline. They don't understand why, how is that possible? I don't know. Then when they start looking at, at cells under microscopes and they start splitting the red blood cells, they don't understand it. That's why when, you, when, when someone is murdered, I don't care how much you clean that floor, blood stains. Isn't that, true? Isn't that crazy? Because the Lord says blood speaks. And so they clean the floor with blood and they come in there with the spray and they can still see the floor where somebody was killed. You can't get rid of a blood stain. It doesn't go. Is that crazy? It's like one of the only, the only substances in the earth that cannot be eradicated. They can't get rid of it. And so, you know, the thing, my point is, is that we ask all of these crazy skeptical questions as if we're so smart and we demand an answer. And yet we cannot answer simple things. We can't answer, why does the sun go from the east to the west? Why does it move along the horizon? We understand what, but we don't understand why. How is the sun, how is that sun in a fusion reaction? We understand what it is, but we don't understand why or how. What is natural conception? We understand what it is, but we don't understand how it takes place. We don't understand it. We know that it does, but we don't know how. We don't understand that how day one the cell is in three forms, by day seven, it's, by day three it's in this form. It, every, every human being is replicated in, in coded sequence. We're replicated the same way. They don't understand that. They just understand that it does. So if we can't understand that, what do, how do we actually think that we're going to understand when God says the virgin will conceive? How do you think we're ever going to get our mind around that? Natural and supernatural. If we don't understand natural things, Jesus said, you'll never understand supernatural things. So, it's just a thought. Romans chapter 1, concerning Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's an interesting thing. Jesus was never validated as the Savior, nor was He validated as the Son of God through the virgin birth. He was not. That didn't validate Him. God never declared him to be the Savior or the Son of God. He was, that was something that happened. He was born. But the Bible tells us that he was declared to be the Savior of the world through the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is what entitled him to the claim that he makes. And do you know why? Because everyone born of man stays in the ground. We're not resurrecting, are we? And we're certainly not coming back from three days going, Hey, here I am, downtown chewing on a banana. Washing your camel. Hey, man, weren't you the guy? Yeah, that was me. That was me. Yeah, that was me. The Bible says he hung around for a while when he, was, when he was raised. He was seen by over 500 people. So he didn't just raise and then just take off into the atmosphere. He hung out. And the Bible says that he hung out and he ministered to his disciples and taught them the things of the kingdom. He was teaching them, look, this is what this is. This is why it is. This is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to do it. You know, he was explaining things to them. And he was cruising around. And people saw him. 500 witnesses saw him. Concerning Jesus Christ our Lord, born of the line of David according to the flesh, but he was declared to be the Son of God, or the one born of God, born by the Spirit, with the power of the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So his resurrection is what gave him the right to claim salvation, Savior, right, rulership. He was born to die. This is important to know. Right? Does anybody anybody come from a Catholic background here? Okay, fundamentally, 
Catholics believe a lot of the same things. But they have a tremendous amount of dogma on top of that, right? There's a lot of dogma. So I'm going to be nice to the Catholics. So I'm going to be nice to that. Because they believe in a virgin birth. They believe in blood atonement. They believe in the resurrection from the dead. They believe in, the, you know, they believe in a lot of fundamental things. But they put a lot of dogma. There's a lot of opinions and a lot of church teaching that's layered on top of that. That's not in the Bible. Okay? And one of the things that happens is that they always victimize Jesus. Jesus is either a helpless baby in a manger or he's dying on the cross. Either way, he's, he's powerless. That's how they personify him. He's the baby in the manger or he's hanging. Oh, poor Jesus looking him up there on the cross. Oh, poor Jesus. Let's look all shed a tear and light a candle while we look at Jesus on the cross. And I'd be all in on that if that were true. But Christ is not on the cross, ladies and gentlemen. Right? He's raised, seated at the right hand of God in power. Right? He's no victim. He's a victor, not a victor, or not a victim. And he's not a helpless baby. He wasn't hell, he was a helpless baby, but he was a lamb slain before the foundations of the world. He was born to die. No one takes my life from me, I give it away. And if I give it away, I have the power to take it up again. This authority has been given to me by my Father, this authority has been given to me by heaven. I, I, I can lay my life down if I choose to. Or I can just bug out of here right now if I choose to. But if I lay my life down, I have the power to take it up again. So I'm going to read for you the Christmas story. You guys want to hear the Christmas story? Some of you never heard this in a while. We read this every year at my house. My son used to roll his eyes and I'd go, it's your turn to read it, Elias. It's your turn. You're a big boy now. It's found in, I'll just give you brief parts of it. I'm not going to give the whole thing, but it's just stuff that relates to the virgin birth. Now, the birth of Jesus was like this. The Bible's not explaining it. It's just telling us. This is how Jesus was born. It went down like this. No explanation. Just telling you. His mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. That's crazy. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make a public spectacle of her, wanted to put her away secretly. But he thought about these things, and behold, an angel of the Lord. What he basically did is he was stressed out. He's like, what am I going to do? And he was so like overwhelmed that he fell asleep, and an angel fell away. Anybody ever feel that way? You're like so overwhelmed with the decisions. Like, i got to lay down. <laughs> Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So the angel comes and testifies to him. And she will bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus, or Jehoshua, for he will save, which means God who saves. His name is going to be not just Emmanuel. His name is going to be not the God that is with us. His name is going to be the God who is with us, but the God who saves us. Thank God. That's right. For he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet saying, here's Matthew quoting the Old Testament. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. He's quoting Isaiah. And his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. Which is and then Joseph being aroused from sleep did as the angel of the Lord commanded. That would be a good idea. And he took Mary as his wife, but he did not sleep with her until the, the child was born. So she was a virgin at conception, and she was a virgin at birth. Very important. There's a validity of her virginity several times. She's valid, the angel validates it to her. She validates it back to, the, back to uh, the angel. She said, I've never known. She's like, behold, your daughter says, your virgin's going to conceive. And she's like, how is this possible? I've never known a man. I'm a virgin. So he says, you're the virgin. She says, I am a virgin. And then it tells us repeatedly here that Joseph didn't sleep with her before. He didn't sleep with her during. And he didn't sleep with her until after the baby was born. So she, she was a virgin at the conception. And she was a virgin at the birth. That's important to know. Because Jesus was not, there was, he was born of God, conceived of God. Luke one twenty eight. having come, the angel said, rejoice, highly favored one. That's for all y'all right there this morning. You're in Christ. That's a word for you today. Rejoice, highly favored one. Put your, tap your, tap your heart and say, rejoice, rejoice. Celebrate. celebrate, get happy, yeah. highly favored one. You are, you're highly favored. He loves you. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled. Every time you see an angel in the Old Testament, they weren't little baby angels floating around. You know, we put these little cherub, little, little ceramic statues. Oh, look at those angels. Every time somebody saw an angel in the Old Testament, they were freaking out. They were like, 
whoa. She saw him and she was troubled. Okay, that's an understatement. The angel said to her, don't be afraid. He said the same thing to Zechariah. He said the same thing to the shepherds. The shepherds were like, oh, and they're like, don't be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with the Lord. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great. And he will be called the son of the highest. That's what you're called. In Christ, you are sons and daughters of the highest because you're adopted into him. You are now in Christ. He's the son of the highest. You are now in Christ as a son and the daughter of the highest. Seated with him in heavenly places. Adopted into full rights of inheritance. You're not going to get them. You have them now. You have it now. The minute you step into Christ, it's given to you. You may not see it because you don't know how to activate it, but you are given full rights of inheritance. Heaven sees you as sons and daughters of the highest. Make no mistake. You don't see yourself that way, but heaven sees you as no less than that. That's why you need to change the way you think about who you are. You're not common. Why do you act common? Why do you want to be like everybody else? You're not. In Christ, you have nothing to do with anybody else. You're sons and daughters of the highest. You're divine royalty. You're heirs of this world and the one to come. doesn't mean you're better, but it means you have greater things. You have a higher identity, a higher purpose, a higher meaning to your life. You are not common. So like 2020, the theme of this church is rise to the level of your birth. Can we rise to the level of our birth? Can we stop accepting an identity that's beneath the one that the Lord has put on us? If he says, you're a son of, or you're a son of the highest, you're a daughter. Oh no, I'm just a worm. Oh, I'm barely saved. I'm holding on till Jesus comes. You're completely out of sync. You don't know who you are. Or if you're in Christ and Jesus is just a little box that you check and you're part of the greater culture and then you come to church and then participate in this and then you go and this is the lifestyle you live. Christianity itself is a lifestyle. We're not of this culture. We're of the kingdom culture. We reflect a different set of values and a different set of actions, a different heart, a different mindset. We're not a people of greed. We're a people of generosity. We're not a people of hate. We're a people of love. We're people of mercy. We're people of forgiveness. We're people of kindness. We're people of restoration, of power, of mutuality. On mission to bring our Father's kingdom to this world. That's what we're here for. We're part of that culture, not the one that we, not this one. That should make some of you happy. Somebody should be happy about that. That you're not part of that system. This broken, sick, diseased, greedy, consumed, narcissistic system. You have no part of that. That's not you. That's why you're not happy being a part of it. Did you know that? You always wondered why you're not happy doing all this stuff. Because you're not a part of it. It's not in you anymore. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You're only happy when you're doing stuff for Jesus. You're like, well, I'm I? you know. I'm only happy when I'm doing stuff for Jesus. I don't understand that. I don't understand. Whatever it is, I can do whatever, whatever it may be. You can do it in your workplace. You can do it in your home. But if you're doing something with the Lord, you, you feel good about it. You feel harmony with that. <clears throat> he says, how does this be? Because I do not know a man. The angel says, this, this is how it's going to happen. Listen, here's how it's going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And the power of the highest is going to overshadow you. And also that the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. That's what he said. How's it going to happen? Holy Spirit's going to take care of everything. That's the beauty of it all, man. Same power given to us. Holy Spirit does all the heavy lifting. You don't have to work so hard, Christian. You need to learn to lean and commune with the Holy Spirit. And whatever He tells you to do, do. Yes, the Logos word. Absolutely. Obey the written text. But what we have to understand as believers is the written text is the foundation. Jesus lived off the revelation upon the foundation. And the Holy Spirit is the only one who brings that forth. And so we live in communion with the Holy Spirit in relationship to the Word of God. And He'll tell you. He's, listen, listen, say it with me. He has a way out of, his circle, out of my circumstances. That's right. He does. Do you know why? Because He says, I'll make a way in the wilderness. Say this. He has provision in my desert. Do you know why? Because the Word of God tells you. He'll make streams in the desert. This isn't a myth. This isn't a poem. And so when you take the Word of God and go, Lord, I need a stream in the desert. Holy Spirit, where is the river in my desert? He's going to begin to provide it, or He's going to give you the wisdom, or He's going to begin to prophetically nudge you to the place where the river flows. But you have to cooperate. He's not going to drop the river at your front door. 
So Christians are. We just want to lay on, sit in lazy boys and sip smoothies all the time, thinking we don't have to participate in this gospel and that God's going to do everything. Who told you that? You know, that's not in your Bible. That's a concept and a construct and a dogma created by the church that is not from the gospel. We have always been and always will be participants with the Holy Spirit. He does all the lifting. All you got to do is listen to Him and obey. And you say, that's too much work, Kevin. Oh, I got to learn to listen to the Holy Spirit. I don't know. Yeah, it's work. It's work. It's work. But after time, you become acclimated to Him. You begin, my sheep hear my voice. Most Christians' problem is is they can't hear the Father's voice. They can't hear the Son's voice. They can't hear the Spirit's voice upon their heart. They have no, no distinction. And we think it's only in the Logos. It's only in the Logos. Yeah, I just told you how to take the Logos and apply it into Rhema. Lord, I'm lost in the trees. Your word says I have a way in the wilderness. Holy Spirit, show me where the way is in the wilderness. Lord, you gave, you gave Elijah a widow woman who fed him and sustained him in famine. I need someone, someplace, something to sustain me in this season. Whatever. Take whatever it is. That's how we activate the promises. We speak the word to him. The Bible tells us this. Put me in remembrance of my word. That's exactly what I'm telling you to do. And people go, when, he, when you quote that verse, people go, well, does that mean God forgets his word? And the Lord goes, oh yeah. Oh, I did say that. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot about that. When you put him in remembrance of his word, you're not reminding him of something he said. He's, you're telling him, I know what you said. And that pleases him. It pleases him that you know what he told you. It pleases him when you know who you are. That pleases him. It pleases him when you know your promises and you know your identity. You ever notice that when you step into power, there's never a rebuke? Well, before we go into power here, Kevin, you got to repent for that. You got to repent for that cigarettes, that R-rated movie, that Jay-Z song you were listening to on the way to church. Before I do anything, we need to deal with that. Never happens. The guy with the bow legs healed in, healed in um, Brazil. He didn't go through a repentance line before God healed him. Why? Because he was a son and the bread is for the children. He was already a Christian. He was living backslidden, but that does not disqualify your inheritance. That's why grace is amazing. The doctrine or the dogma of the church says, if you break covenant with God, then God's not going to bless you. Well, who told you that? Listen, there's a difference between promises and inheritance. Inheritance is the benefit plan. Promises are next level stuff. Your actions will disqualify you from next level things. But your actions will not disqualify you from your inheritance. And people go, well, why? That's why the book of Romans are like, well, then we should sin. Because what's the difference between sin? And Paul's telling them, listen, you're saying sin so that grace abounds? Are you crazy? If you want to go back to sin, then you're probably not saved at all. Because there's no transformation within your heart. But if you're truly born again, your actions do not disqualify you from your inheritance. They will disqualify you from the promises. So let's just reinforce this one once more time. Say this. There is a difference between my inheritance and the promises. All of us are given inheritance. We all have inheritance. But not all of us will reach the same level through the promises. Because the promises are directly related to your choices and actions. Salvation is an inheritance. We all get it. Happy day. Happy day. Healing is an inheritance. Basic provision is an inheritance. Right? Hope is an inheritance. Wisdom is an inheritance. Comfort is an inheritance. All of those things. You should never lack comfort. God doesn't take comfort from you because you sinned last night. Comfort's available to you 24-7 because it's your inheritance. Healing is yours. You don't know how to activate it. There's a difference. You have a Ferrari, but you don't know how the key works. That's the problem. We need to learn how to... Most of us, that we see the Ferrari, and we're just looking at it. And we're like, look at my Ferrari. What a beautiful Ferrari. Look how shiny it is. Or we sit in the back seat when we're supposed to sit in the driver's seat. Or we get in on the passenger side, and we wonder, why isn't this thing working? Because you don't know how to activate the very powerful thing that God gave you. That's where a lot of this stuff happens. Provision is basic provision is to all believers. Next level provision is based upon certain things that you do. There's a difference. It's very important to understand the difference. We can't convolute this. 
We can't say that promises and inheritance are the same thing because they're not. And then people go, well, I don't think I got this because I sinned. And I'd say, well, you're probably right because that's a promise. And you didn't obey the condition put upon the promise. Every promise has a condition. It does. Bring the tithe into the, into the storehouse and prove me I will not pour out a blessing so much that you cannot contain it. Honor me with the first fruits of all of your increase. Then your vats will burst forth with fullness and your barns will, or your, your barns will overflow first with plenty and your vats will overflow first with new wine. That is a next level condition upon the financial promise. But all of you will be provided for basically. All our basic provision is to all believers. Survival, success, significance. Where do you want to be? Basic provision is to all. But the higher levels are directly related to your willingness to move by faith into the things God has said. He's told you to do certain things that relate to a blessing that He has for you. You don't have to, but you get to. It's an interesting thing. Yeah, exactly. Come on, man. All right. So she was betrothed. All right, you guys get anything else? We doing good? Are we all right? We good? We good? All right, I know. I'm jumping here, jumping here. So I'm jumping back over here. They were betrothed. This is important. A betrothal period in the ancient old, in the ancient Hebrew culture was between six months to a year. So Joseph was betrothed to Mary. In Hebrew culture, when the betrothal covenant was made, it was considered as though they were married. That's why the Lord says to him, do not be afraid to take to yourself, marry your wife. He, they're referred to as husband and wife, even though they're not, they haven't consummated it yet. They were to live with each other, around each other, not physically with each other, but they were to have a relationship. And some of you were like, well, wow, wait, I should have done this. And I, I'm with you because you're going to understand this. They were, to be, they were to relate to one another for a period of one year before they consummated the marriage. The reason for that was that they were to prove fidelity. To make sure that she is the person that she says he is. And to make sure that he is the person that he says he is. Oh, yeah. It was, to produce, it was to prove fidelity, and it, was to prove, and it was to prove that. But it was also so that the couple could go through four seasons of life with one another. A lot of y'all, you get married because the only thing you saw with that person is springtime. <laughs> Flowers and daisies and green trees. Because all they showed you was springtime. They didn't show you autumn. They didn't show you winter. They didn't show you summer. They showed you springtime. And if you're around someone for a while, you're going to start to notice where the springtime is not necessarily the summer. How does this person handle heat? How does this person handle loss? How does this person handle lack? That's why. God intended it to be that way so that the couple could see this, these issues before they actually entered into the fullness of the covenant. How many people does that happen to? All the time. We get married because, baby, I love you. Oh, yes, I love you. Girl, I want to be with you and I say yes to you right now. I always tell the guy, marriage isn't saying yes to her. It's saying no to every other woman. Oh, can I get a witness? Yeah. Marriage isn't saying yes to her because we all, oh, yes. Jesus, yes. <laughs> Ladies, you do the same thing, but men have the issue with the fidelity. But a lot of times, love's blind. Love's going to work it all out. He loves me, he'll change. No, what you see is what you get. If he is a godless narcissist who cares nothing about himself and what have you done for me lately, you are not changing that. You're not. You're not. This is a big thing with people that marry unbelievers. Now, I know, listen, I understand this. I know I'm dealing with a mixed crowd. So some people are married to unbelievers. But I talk to people and usually it's the woman because the woman's the one that wants the help in the relationship. It's true. The woman values the relationship or is actually willing to be more vulnerable to get the relationship some help than the guy will be. And I have women that come to me and they say, Can, and I'll say, look, here's the problem. Here's the problem. The problem is the guy's not a believer, which means he believes in nothing more than himself. If he was a Christian, I can come to him and talk to him and say, do you claim Jesus? And if he testifies of such, then I can say, then you, are applic- then you are bound to the standard of the word of God. This is what God commands you to do. This is what the Lord tells you to do. Now, he can reject that. 
But if he's, not, if he's godless, there is no connection to that at all. None at all. And so you're basically bound to a person that only cares about themselves. As Christians, we're to yield. I love my wife not because she's this stellar, amazing person. And I mean, she is. I'm not diminishing Sherry. I'm elevating Jesus. I love my wife because the Lord told me to. That's the only reason. Because you know what? She's not lovable at times. I know. Right? I got, I know, I know. All the men are like, yeah! Yeah! (laughs) Normally I'm zinging the dudes, but they're all like, yeah! She honors and respects me because the Lord tells her to. And I'm not worthy of respect all of the time. I'm not worthy of that honor all of the time. But because, so even when we fight, we are obligated to work it out. I'm duty bound by the Lord to work it out. That's why divorce among Christians, it's an anomaly. Really what it is, is it's an issue of discipleship. And I realize there's people in the room, and you've been divorced. It maybe it was a different season in your life. But if you are a full-fledged, all-in, body-in Christian, and you are married, divorce is not your option. If you're a new believer and you kind of don't have this figured out, if you're a carnal believer and you kind of like Jesus when he suits your purposes, but you like yourself more and you're kind of a carnal Christian, then that message isn't for you either. But it's to those who are bought in. Evangelical, I believe Jesus. I'm all in. I follow him. I'm wholeheartedly committed to him. That is your command. That is your command. And there's no option. There's no option. The God hates divorce. Yeah, I get it. He's given options for divorce, yes, but only for the hardness of your heart. Only if you will not bow your selfish, arrogant will. If the person abandons you, you have a right. If the person uh, commits adultery on you, you have a right. If the person is abusive or neglectful, you have a right. Those are the only three reasons. And it's not, he yelled at me, he abused me. That's not abuse, ladies. If he's neglectful or damaging to the relationship and causes harm physically or materially over any period of time, that is grounds. It is. Yeah, it's grounds. I could give you the verses, which, but I don't want to because I'll spend too much time because then I'll have to pull the verse out and I'll have to explain it. But nonetheless, those are the three, those are the base, those are the three bases of, of divorce. Abuse, abandonment, neglect, that's one category. Adultery, that's the second category. And if he leaves. But you know what, guys? Here's the interesting thing. To the Christian, this is another interesting thing. We're on marriages here for some reason, but we're going to finish this. He tells the man not to leave. Did you know that? The man is directly commanded that when he's in covenant with that woman, he is not to leave. Unless, of course, she just kicks him in the backside and sends him out the door... That's a different story, right? But if I'm a believer and I'm commanded to be with my wife, I'm told not to leave. The woman has permission to leave. It says she is to abide with her husband, but if she leaves. In other words, if the situation becomes intolerable for her and she leaves, she is to, she is to work to be reconciled back to that relationship. In other words, you're not just free ladies to go oons, 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 oons. I left my husband. We're going to the disco. You know, it's not, it's not that. It's to leave an intolerable situation or a highly volatile situation in order to bring a, 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 a zone of peace. And the guy is commanded to leave because the woman's value within the relationship is the security of love. Say it with me, gentlemen. The woman's value... Oh, come on. The woman's value in the relationship is the security of love. That's why she asks you three times a day, do you love me? And when the man leaves, it does not communicate to her the security of love. And it does something to her and destabilizes the relationship with her. But when she sees that the person is committed and willing to work on it, a woman will walk through hell in a gasoline suit if she believes she's loved. Can I get a witness? It's true. Women are blood-loyal creatures, gentlemen. Insanely loyal. Like, they put me to shame. My wife puts me to shame with her loyalty. I mean, I'm loyal, but I'm like, whoa, that's real loyalty. Like Sherry's going to knife fight you. Stay away from my husband. I mean, extreme levels of loyalty. And her value in the relationship is love. Is the security of love. 
When you love her and you just love on her, oh my gosh, I dare you. Just love that woman for no reason at all. <laughs> Tell her she's beautiful. You are like an open flower. You are like a fragrance. Okay, lay on the bed with her today and just get a little love drunk. Can we do that? You're like, I'm not doing that. I haven't done that in 25 years, bless God. And that's your problem. That's your problem. Just pet her hair. You don't have to have sex. If you want to, have sex. If you're married, of course. <laughs> have at it. Just pet her hair. Look in her eyes. Notice something different about her. Notice something different about her. She's not telling you, do you like my shoes, to annoy you. Do you like my hair, just because she wants you to, she, she wants you to notice her. Guys, I'm trying to help you. Just love her. Just value her. She's not perfect, but just love the woman. When in doubt, love the woman. Real simple. Default mode for all men. Amen. That's right. When in doubt, just love that woman. Just love her. She's not looking for respect. She's not looking for all these other things. She's not looking for wisdom. She just wants to be loved. She wants to be affirmed. She wants to feel secure. She wants to feel comfort with you. Just telling you. I'm qualified. I've been married. What? How long are we married for? See, that's how long I know. 20, 29 years. 29 years. That's right. No divorce, thoughts of murder many times. <laughs> Always it's right. When I go on vacation, if we go, you see us going on, like if I went to Brazil with her and I, and I didn't come back and she says, oh, Kevin stayed on in Brazil. Don't believe it. If we go on a cruise and I don't come back, don't believe it. Did you divorce shit, Kevin? No, and you won't divorce me, but, you know, I don't know. All of other bets are off. Sharp objects need to leave the room from time to time. Like, let's not have the fight here in the kitchen with all these knives. Can we go out on the porch? <laughs> Jesus was born under law to fulfill sin. Galatians says, in the fullness of time, when the time was exactly right, when the time of order was set, when the time of change was, was, was in the concepts of God's time, the chronos, the kairos, and the epic time was set forth, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. That's again a statement of His virgin birth. Born under the law to redeem those under the law. So He came... From a woman, not from a man, born of the seed of the woman, born under the curse of the law, in order that he might fulfill the curse of the law, and so that we may receive adoption as sons and daughters. That's why he came. He came for you, right? To be sons and daughters, to bring you into equal standing with your, with your birth. This is why he came. That's why he came. He didn't come to be some religious icon that we put on the wall, in order to be some distant, abstract God that we hit like when we're in emergencies or like a bellhop that we ring only when we need something. He came for the communalness of the family, the communalness of relationship. He loves you in spite of your weakness, in spite of your frailty, in spite of your brokenness. He loves you and He will not reject you ever. Who told you He's rejecting you? I don't know who told you that, but Jesus isn't telling you that. He isn't. He loves you. He's for you, not against you. He wants to take you higher. He wants to move you out of your situation. He loves you so much, He will not leave you the same. And you'll soon find that when you're communing with Him, He's going to start looking at your bags going, Kev, you've been dragging that bag around for a long time. Wow, there's like a whole train of luggage here. You know, I mean, I know you're talking to me and I think this is really cool, but aren't you tired of carrying those bags? No, Lord, I love these bags. I've had these bags since I was a kid. I'm going to keep dragging this baggage around with me until I drop. Okay. But when you ever want to let go of those bags, you let me know. That's a relationship. He loves me too much to leave me the same. He will challenge me at the point of change. Are you satisfied? The Bible says He caused the soul to hunger and suffer lack in order that the people would know that they don't live by natural bread alone. 
A lot of times the emptiness or the, the longing within your heart is a direct relationship of your heavenly Father putting a want within you to teach you that you do not, you're not born of natural circumstances. You do not live by this world's bread alone. You're called and born for higher things. The gnawing in your heart, the hunger in your heart, the frustration in your heart is, an in, is, a, is, a, is a driver into the relationship. That's really what it is. If you understand intimacy and relationship, and he's always glad to see you. Say it with me. Jesus, Jesus. I'm telling you now. Jesus, Jesus. is always glad to see you. Do you know how the Holy Spirit reacts when you ask the Holy Spirit for something? Holy Spirit, I want you to work on this. He's like, let's do it. Let's do this. He's more, I, I, when I work with the Holy Spirit and I feel Him and I notice Him, He is more excited than I am. I mean, He wants to solve the problem more than I do. He wants to help me with the issue more than I do. He's more eager than I am. He loves you more than you love yourself. And He knows everything about you. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Warts and all. Jesus was born to die. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. What a statement. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I am the beginning and the end. I am the final answer. I am the government of heaven. No one has a higher word than mine. So what I say goes and nobody challenges it. (laughs) I am he who lives, but I was dead. I have always lived. I am the eternal one, but I died. And behold, I live again. Is that crazy? I am the eternal God, but I suffered death. How? I was virgin born into the human form, and I died, and I suffered the pain of death. But check this out. That's what behold means. Check it out. Be wowed. Wow at this. I'm alive again. I live. And I have the keys of hell and death in the grave. That's what he took back. Devil's authority. He crushed his head. That's what he did. Walks in three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, preaching to the captives, those who rejected him. I'm the one you rejected. I'm the one you rejected. I just want all y'all to know everything you ever heard about me. Here I am. I'm the one you rejected in fullness of truth so that they're witnessed unto their condemnation to the righteous. He went and he said, hey, I'm here for you. He went into paradise because they couldn't ascend until Christ ascended. There was no ascension. They went to Abraham's bosom. And so Jesus, in three days and three nights of the heart of the earth, he said, oh, y'all come with me. Come on, we're going to do something. Walks up, makes the devil bow, puts the devil on his head. And he looks around and he goes, y'all ready? Y'all ready? And they say, yeah, we're ready. We don't know where we're going, but we're with this guy. We don't know. We're going to go. Where are we going? I don't know. Everybody, he's like, hang on. He puts his foot on the devil's neck and he kicks off. It's exactly what happened. He rose from the dead and he ascended. And he took those who were held, who who would look forward to him in faith, who believed the Messiah was coming, a Messiah was coming, a Messiah was coming. Those were the ones who were held in faith in Abraham's bosom. You were the ones who were the redeemed. You were the ones we look back at him and say, he came, he came, he came, he rose, he rose, he rose. You don't have to wait for the kickoff. It's already on. Game's on, people. Kickoff's already happened. The game's on. So when you pass from this world to the next, touchdown, you ascend. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Make no mistake. The only one who saw, the only people who know sorrow are those that are left behind. The loved ones who, not, who are left behind. But to the believer, there's no sorrow there, I can assure you. <laughs> you want to go back? Heck no, I'm not going back. <laughs> when we get there, going to go, I should have been here 20 years ago, man. What took so long? All right, last slide. He's got the authority over it all. Nobody has the authority of hell and death except Jesus. Nobody. He has total authority. I hold the keys, which is absolute authority. So what I say goes. If you're in me and I say you have eternal life, nobody's going to question it because I grant it. I have the power to give it to whoever I want to give it to. And here's the conditions that you believe in me. That you give your heart to me. That you submit and surrender yourself to my lordship. And if you will do such a thing, then I will grant you the treasures of eternity. See, that's, let's say this with me. That sounds too good to be true. However, it's so good, it is true. Say this, Jesus is better than I think. Therefore, I must change the way that I think. That's right. Isaiah says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. The dominion of heaven, he will bear the dominion of all. And his name will be called Wonderful. You want to wonder? Jesus is full of it. 
He's wonderful. Okay? You want hope? Jesus is full of it. He's hopeful. It's all in Him. Counselor. You need counsel? He's the wonderful counselor. He is wonderful and counseling at the same time. What? Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government, the kingdom is expanding even as we speak. The government of heaven is expanding even in this place, even in our generation. Through His Spirit and through the actions and the lives and the intentions of His people. In communion with the Holy Spirit, the kingdom is expanding. And of His government and of His peace, the shalom, the ever-increasing goodness of God, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David, over His kingdom, to order it and to establish it, and to judgment and justice from this time forth forevermore, and the passion of the Lord will accomplish this. He'll do it because He wants to. He'll do it because He's passionate about it. Jesus came, He was sent, and He was given. How beautiful. He was given. Unto us, a child is born. So to us, he's just a baby being born. But in truth, he's the son that was given. You see the paradigm? To a human, to a human viewpoint, he's just a child that was born. But from heaven's eyes, he is the son that was given. So Jesus was given. He's the son that was given. He's the gift, the only one that can save and give eternal life. He's, say this with me. Jesus is not one among many. He's the one and only. The one and only. He's not, he's not equal with Buddha, Krishna, Allah. None of these. None of these. Oh, we serve the same God. Not if His name's not Jesus. We don't save the same God. I don't care who you claim. There is one name given under heaven by which men may be saved. And it's the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow and every knee will confess. Not at L. Ron Hubbard, Tom Cruise. No way. Not going to happen. Scientology isn't going to save you. Hinduism, humanism, PhDs on the wall aren't going to save you. They might make you a little smarter or a little stupider in some people's cases, but nonetheless, they're not going to save you. So if you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus, I'm four minutes over. I'm supposed to be done now, four minutes ago, but we're going to end it right here. <laughs> if you've never received, opened your heart and received Jesus, say it with me. Today, oh, come on, everybody just say, just say, today's my day. There you go. Today's my day. That's right. If you've never received Jesus, today's your day. All you got to do is open your heart, believe in your heart, and confess with your mouth. Say, I don't understand it. Say it with me. He never told me to understand it. He told me to believe it. And say this, there is a difference between belief and understanding. He said, if you believe in your heart, and you'll just say it with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord and He has risen from the dead. You will be saved. That's what He said. That's the conditions. So we're going to pray. We're all going to pray together. But if that's you, just go. Just come along. Take the red pill, Neil. Come on. We're going to pray. Say it. Let's all say it together. Say, Dear Jesus, I believe that You are the Savior. And I need a Savior. I do not understand all of this. But I choose to believe it. So I open my heart to you, Jesus, and I ask you to come inside. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to heal me. I ask you to restore me. And I ask you to repurpose my life. All that I am, I give to you. And all that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Awesome. If you need prayer.